you view God? Really, when you stop to think about it, how do you think about God? Now, I often wonder, because I see the way people behave, I often wonder how they think about God. What is their view of God? I sometimes wonder if people think God is just irrelevant and they don't give it a thought. Well, I'm not sure they never give it a thought, but they live as though they don't give it a thought. God is maybe to them irrelevant. Or maybe some people would say, well, God is absent. Uh, maybe they would say they believe in a God. They believe in the God of the Bible, maybe. But, you know, that he just doesn't seem to be around much, and he doesn't seem to take part in things, and he's just not here. He's absent. Um, I suppose he exists, but he doesn't seem to, to get directly involved in what, what concerns us and what happens in our lives. Maybe, maybe the one of the most common responses, and again, I don't, I don't know how to get in everybody's head. I just think about this because as a pastor, I want to help people think about God better correctly. But maybe a lot of people just deny God by not thinking about it. Maybe they try to just live their life and, and they hope against hope in some way that, that God just leaves them alone or doesn't intrude, or maybe if they don't think about it, they don't have to deal with it. Well, maybe that, maybe other things. I suppose there are as many potential perspectives that people have as people themselves, how they might think about God and what they might say about it. But here's the thing. When you or I, when any of us come face to face with a problem that our power and our money can't solve, then what? You know, it's almost always going to happen to people in one way or another. They're going to come face to face with a problem that their power and their money can't solve. Now, if you've been used to having power to tell people to do that, and they do that, and if you've been used to having people tell you yes every time you ask for something and they provide it for you, then maybe you're used to power and you're used to being able to say, I want this fixed and it gets fixed. But what happens when you can't, by anything you try, can't solve that problem. Or sometimes people are used to throwing money at a problem. They have plenty of money, and so they just spend their way into a solution one way or another. They don't take any account for that. It's just going to be solved. You see, we try to solve our problems with our power and our money. But what happens? What happens when we come face to face with a problem that our power and our money cannot solve. And you can count on it happening. It happens to almost everyone. Then what? Well, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is. This is the program where we try to stretch each other to have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, because we believe faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And I want to help you have that confidence in God. I want to help you develop that trust. I want to help you not consider God as irrelevant or absent or anything else. I want you to come to understand God as he has revealed himself to us in the pages of the Bible so that we can come to have 
absolute confidence in his trustworthiness. And so we can actually trust him with our lives, with the lives of the people we care about, with the things that we come across in our lives that our power and our money can't fix. Well, before we get started in the, the heart of what we want to talk about today, I want to just circle back to a couple of things that have happened in recent days. And by that, I mean, for one, the opinion issued by the United States Supreme Court, that's now known as the Dobbs opinion. It was the opinion that flat out overturned Roe v. Wade and a later decision known as the Casey decision. What are the ramifications and how do we respond to that? Well, I've seen a lot of people rejoicing that the decision came down, the opinion came down, and they're right to rejoice because this, the Supreme Court's decision took a huge step toward preserving the lives of unborn babies. And we should be glad about that. One of the functions of government is to protect the innocent. And this is a function that the Supreme Court recognizes belongs in the hands of the government, not in the hands of the Supreme Court. And now the court has allowed that to be made by the people and the people's representatives. So that opinion overturned Roe and said there is no United States constitutional right to an abortion. It returned the issue to the people and to the people's representatives. Now, that means a lot of things and has a lot of ramifications. On the one hand, it's, it's great news. For all of us who care about unborn children, it's terrific news. Now, I've heard a lot of others' perspective on that, saying, what about the harm to women? What about women who have been harmed by abortion? You know, there's a lot of pain associated with the whole abortion conversation. A lot of pain. I understand that. A lot of pain for the babies that died, millions. A lot of pain for the mothers who were coerced into a procedure they didn't want to have. A lot of them who later, after they had gone through it by their own choice, regretted it and came to wonder about that baby that would never be. I understand there's a lot of pain in this thing. And there's no, there's no getting rid of that. But there is a way to redeem the people involved in that. And there is a way to replace that pain with the power and forgiveness of Jesus. Now, people think these are simplistic answers, and they're not. And that's one of the great things about the gospel, is that Jesus comes along and he says, all of the stuff, I'll take it on, and I will die and pay the rightful penalty for all of the sins of all of the people so that they can be forgiven. And if you've been scarred by, hurt by, damaged by, if you still feel the pain related to an abortion of some kind, I don't know your circumstances. I couldn't begin to, to guess at, at what you've been through. But if you find yourself in a position wondering, what do I do about this ache because of something that happened to me or something that I did or something that I was coerced into doing, what do I do about it? I want to ask you to bring all of that bring all of that and confess it to the one who gave his life for you and who wants to be the one to take away that pain and replace it with joy. Yes, we will always feel the, the remorse of the things that we've done, 
But the good news of the gospel is there is an answer to all of that. And the answer is in the redemptive power of the one who went to the cross to die for all of us. And many of us rejoice that now babies are better protected. The battle's not over. We'll get to that in a minute. We rejoice because babies now have a greater chance at life. We rejoice because mothers have a greater chance to make better choices because they won't have the opportunity to be coerced so badly into a choice they don't want to make. We rejoice because there is an answer that goes deeper than the problem of abortion. It goes all the way to the human heart that has been damaged by sin. And the answer to that is to turn all you know of yourself over to all you know of Jesus. Pledge allegiance to him, change your life, follow his pattern, believe the good news. You've heard some of the phrases. Some of them are more descriptive and better to help us than others. It comes right down to changing your life and making Jesus your priority and your allegiance. Follow the way he leads. You'll get to where you want to go. Now, about the ramifications of the road decision, a lot of people misunderstand, and a lot of the people that have been the loudest in their voices, it seems to me, over the last few days have been the people that say, we lost a constitutional right. Well, you read this court's decision, and I read some of it. It's a long decision. I may get back to reading the whole thing, but it is extraordinarily well written, and it goes to great detail and great length to explain that the Roe decision was a terrible decision based on law and terrible abuse of our constitutional rights. We did not lose a right by the Supreme Court's opinion that they issued in the Dobbs case. We got back on track for what the Constitution really gave us. So we shouldn't allow anybody to deceive us that way, and we shouldn't jump to that conclusion. We didn't lose a right. We restored a proper reading of the Constitution. The next step of all of this, though, is really significant because the chief thing that the Dobbs opinion does is it returns the question of abortion to the people and their representatives. What that means is the court has says we have no business here and they didn't have any business 50 years ago when they did it. And now they're saying it's up to the people and their representatives. What that means to a great measure is that it's up to our state representatives, our state legislators. And we need to pay very careful attention to what they're saying. For many of our state legislators, members of our state houses and our state senates have not wanted to deal with issues like this. They have done all they could to make sure they didn't have to deal with them. And if we care about preserving life, and really life is God's idea, and these babies, God calls them a gift, not a problem. They're a gift. We need to treat them that way. But if we're going to preserve that, that concept, that value of life, we're going to have to watch our state legislatures. In Florida, until this last session of our legislature earlier this year, there had not been significant pro-life legislation for more than 10 years, maybe many more than that. I'm not certain of the exact number of years. I've been watching the legislature for a while now, and it goes back a long time. Now, it's not because we haven't had elected representatives in our House and elected representatives in our Senate, or even governors that haven't come out and said they are pro-life. We've had majorities of people who say they're pro-life 
in both houses, both the House of Representatives and in the Senate. And we've had governors that said they were pro-life, but why didn't we get pro-life legislation? Well, there you go. That's the question, isn't it? You see, we have to watch those members of the House and the Senate. We have to listen to what they say, but more, watch what they do. Because in our legislature, and I know it better than your state, but they're similar in all of the states, people will say one thing out loud and in public, and then in subtle ways sometimes, and sometimes in hidden ways, sometimes in not so subtle ways, they will work to make sure legislation they don't want to vote on doesn't come up for a vote. And I'm afraid that's what has happened on some of the life initiatives down through the years in Florida. We say one thing, but our representatives do another. And we have to watch for that because now it's clearly in the hands of our representatives and of the people. So if you want to advance preservation of babies and of life, watch your state legislature and watch your governor. Sometimes governors, and I don't know one that has, so don't, don't ask me, well, give me a specific example. Again, we know this goes on. We just don't see it. Some people see it, but they don't talk about it because they know there are consequences to that. But sometimes people like governors will say, yes, I'll sign this bill if they give it to me. And all the while they're saying that publicly, they're working behind the scenes to make sure it doesn't pass because they don't want to have to decide publicly on a significant piece of legislation. It's the way they manage us. They try to get us to look one direction and then they do something else. So bottom line of the Dobbs opinion is that it's going to be up to us, the people, to continue to preserve life. And it's going to be up to our states, by and large, to preserve life. Will every state do it? Probably not. We've heard too much and seen too much in certain states. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't speak up and expect our state representatives, our state senators, to do the right thing, our governors, to sign strong pro-life legislation. Watch the courts as well. There's still going to be some mischief going on there. But it's a good day. It's a good day for biblical truth. It's a good day for life. It's a good day when something that God tells us is a gift is preserved in our nation. And a, and a decision that was just terrible, both legally and morally, has been overturned. Well, there was another decision. You may have noticed it. I don't know if you paid as much attention to it or not. But there was a significant decision supporting prayer. You may have heard the story that the Supreme Court released another decision, and it struck down previous not legislation, previous activism, if that's the right word, that put up a very restrictive test when it came to prayer, particularly public prayer. So back in 2008, Coach Joe Kennedy promised God he would pray and give thanks after each football game. He was a coach. Regardless of the outcome, he determined he would drop to one knee and offer a silent prayer, quiet prayer of thanksgiving for player safety, sportsmanship, the competition they had. And he did this for many years. Nobody complained. But as time went on, members of the community and players often joined him. And it was really welcomed exercise following these games. Nobody forced anybody to do it. They all did it voluntarily. But in 2015, seven years after he started, the school district where he worked ordered him to stop his post-game prayers. They thought and told him that his 
praying violated the Constitution, the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. They cited a particular Supreme Court decision known as the Lemon Test and told him he needed to stop. He didn't stop. And they fired him. Well, long and short of it is he defended his right to pray, his freedom of religion, his freedom of expression, and fought back in the courts, and it took a long time. But just a few days ago now, the Supreme Court released another opinion supporting his, his right to pray, even on school property, even in a football field, uh, even with other people around, apparently. The, um, the justices did not at all support the arguments that the school district offered. They completely disagreed with them. They, uh, they wrote in the opinion, respect for religious expressions is indispensable to, a, to life in a free and diverse republic. Whether those expressions take place in a sanctuary or on a field, whether they manifest through the spoken word or a bowed head. End of quote. Now, that's a, that's a very significant statement because in recent years, we have seen people try to move free expression of religion inside churches inside houses of worship and not allow it outside. And many of us have said, no, that's not right. And here the court said the very same thing. They, those expressions can take place in a sanctuary or on a field. Another quote from their opinion. Here, a government entity sought to punish an individual for engaging in a brief, quiet, personal religious observance, doubly protected by the free exercise and free speech clauses of the First Amendment. And the only meaningful justification the government offered for its reprisal rested on a mistaken view that it had a duty to ferret out and suppress religious observances, even as it allows comparable secular speech. The Constitution neither mandates nor tolerates that kind of discrimination. End of quote. That paragraph is just so very significant. I, I hope you see that because it says people can't discriminate against people who express their religious views. They can't take action against them like the school district did in firing the coach. The Constitu Constitution does not tolerate that kind of discrimination, the court said. Think about that. They call that discrimination, and I agree. Now, is everything going to change? Uh, no, nothing changes that quickly. But we should take heart that the court, and I think in many respects, public opinion is beginning to wake up and to realize that all of this suppression of religious expression was never intended by the founders of our country and that we need to stand up for it. Now, occasionally I hear, uh, I hear church leaders, it just, it's just unbelievable. Church leaders want to want to say, well, how can we expect to to have that kind of freedom? I mean, people haven't always had that in other times and other places. And that's true. People haven't always had that. But this isn't other times and other places. This is the United States of America, where we have constitutionally guaranteed rights. We this is the United States of America, where this weekend we celebrate the Declaration of Independence that tells us in no uncertain terms, and declares on our behalf in no uncertain terms 
that our rights come from our Creator. Our rights come from God, and no one can take them away. And it's those rights, it's that protection of rights that our founders understood that is then protected in the United States Constitution. In fact, read the Declaration of Independence this weekend. You don't, you don't have to read far to find this. It even says that governments are formed so that the rights of the people can be preserved and protected. The chief responsibility of government is not to tear down our rights or to take them away. It's to preserve them because they come from God, and we should respect that. And we should expect the government to protect us from anyone who would try to take those rights away. That's, that's hugely significant. And I don't know that I meant to spend that much time on this, but, but this is really about us building up our confidence that God is with us and for us and helping us. I, I don't know how many people would have ever imagined that God could accomplish significant things through the United States Supreme Court, but he did. And, and when you begin to think about the ramifications of that, the, the faithful people involved in doing the right thing put the right people in the right place so that they could make the right decision and issue the right opinion. We should give thanks for Supreme Court justices who, in, in many respects, and they won't say this publicly, and I understand why, and you understand why, but in many respects, they listen to God, and they understand that it was God that gave us our rights, and they understand their responsibility is to preserve those rights, to protect those rights from, from anybody who would take them away, and, and we give thanks for that. We, we really do. Well, let's turn now to a fascinating story in the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament stories. I will never forget the, um, the wonderful lady that taught us when I was a kid. She taught us the Bible stories. She put up with us even when we thought we were too old to be in the class with all the kids. And, and yet I am convinced that I learned so much about the Old Testament because of her faithfulness. If you teach kids out there and you teach them the Bible stories, keep doing it put up with the nonsense. I'm sure she put up with more of my nonsense than I can remember. I guess I'm thankful I can't remember. But one of the stories I remember learning all those years ago was the story of a man named Naaman. And you find that story in 2 Kings chapter 5, and I want to read that story. It's just really worth reading. We're not going to read the whole story, but we want to take a look at part of the story, uh, some of the significant things about the story. There's plenty more. Just read past the verses we're going to read. I want to read from a different translation of the Bible than we typically use on the program. I'm going to read from the Common English Bible. It's a good translation. I read from it not because it's the perfect translation. I don't know that there is the perfect translation. They all have their usefulnesses. But I want to give you an example of how I want you to find an English translation of the Bible that you will read and understand and benefit from. And it doesn't have to be a stiff and difficult translation. Some people seem to think that it's more holy if they use a harder-to-read translation. I, I don't find that anywhere in the Bible. I think if you want to be holy, you want to find out what God really says so you can live the life that demonstrates being holy. So from 2 Kings chapter 5, starting with verse 1, from the Common English Bible. Naaman, a general for the king of Aram, was a great man and highly regarded by his master, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. 
This man was a mighty warrior, but he had a skin disease. Now, Aramean raiding parties had gone out and captured a young girl from the land of Israel. She served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master could come before the prophet who lives in Samaria. He would cure him of his skin disease. So Naaman went and told his master what the young girl from the land of Israel had said. Then Aram's king said, go ahead. I will send a letter to, the, to Israel's king. So Naaman left. He took along 10 kickers of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. He brought the letter to Israel's king. It read, along with this letter, I'm sending you my servant Naaman so you can cure him of his skin disease. When the king of Israel read the letter, he ripped his clothes. He said, what? Am I God to hand out life and death? But this king writes me asking me to cure someone of his skin disease. You must realize that he wants to start a fight with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that Israel's king had ripped his clothes, he sent word to the king, why did you rip your clothes? Let the man come to me. Then he'll know that there's a prophet in Israel. Naaman arrived with his horses and chariots. He stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent out a messenger who said, go and wash seven times in the Jordan River. Then your skin will be restored and become clean. But Naaman went away in anger. He said, I thought for sure that he'd come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the bad spot and cure the skin disease. Aren't the rivers in Damascus, the Abana and the Farfar better than all Israel's waters? Couldn't I wash in them and get clean? So he turned away and proceeded to leave in anger. Naaman's servants came up to him and spoke to him, Our father, if the prophet had told you to do something difficult, wouldn't you have done it? All he said to you was, wash and become clean. So Naaman went down and bathed in the Jordan River seven times, just as the man of God had said. His skin was restored like that of a young boy, and he became clean story of Naaman continues a little bit beyond that. That's through verse 14. And again, I would encourage you, encourage anybody to read the whole story. It's really a fascinating story. There's more that goes on after this. We just dealt with the early part that primarily had to do with Naaman and having the disease and then having it healed by God. So it starts out with a problem and ends up with a solution. But along the way, there are some other problems. So one of the ways you can think about the story of Naaman is the story of, of problems and solutions. So let's begin back at the beginning, kind of set the scene for what's going on. The main character the, of the story, the character around which all of the action takes, is, takes place is Naaman. And he was the commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was an important guy, high-ranking guy highly regarded. And one of the things that it tells us in the early part of the story is that he was highly regarded because the Lord had given him victory in battle. Very interesting that he was highly regarded for something he didn't do. Uh, now, maybe he didn't know he didn't do it. Maybe the king in Aram didn't know he hadn't done it, but he hadn't. 
He's still described as a valiant warrior, even though he hadn't won that particular battle by his valiantry, but he had a skin disease. Well, a couple of things before we go into the skin disease, although that's one of the very first things that pops up. It's very significant to understand that that Aram did not win that battle for which he got credit. It was the Lord that gave him victory. That was clear from the way the scriptures talk about that. And we need to understand that, that sometimes we think we're hot stuff and we do great things, but it's the Lord that helps us. And we need to recognize God's role in our lives. And we need to recognize that, that God is still at work in our world. You know, the Lord gave Naaman that victory. Is it too much of a stretch to say the Lord gave us the victory in the in the Dobbs case that overturned Roe and in the case of the coach that prayed, that gave him permission to pray, that recognized, I shouldn't say gave him permission, that recognized his constitutionally protected freedom to pray? We should give thanks that God is not absent in our world. There are evidence of, now some people say, oh, well, that was just a legal thing. That was a court thing. Really? Was that just a battle thing? Scriptures say that the Lord gave him the victory. I don't have any difficulty asserting that the Lord gave us the opinion that is helping save babies starting now. I don't have any reluctance to say the Lord gave us the Supreme Court opinion that preserved that coaches and yours and my freedom of expression, freedom of religion. I don't have any reluctance to that. And we should not, we should not minimize that at all. Well, there's a lot more to the story of Naaman, and we're going to get to that. That's just a beginning. You hang on. We're going to take a little break and a little breather and absorb a little bit of what God is saying to us. And we're going to return in a minute, and we're going to have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. Be back with you in just a second. The Genesis Fogger is critically important to breathing cleaner air, which is essential to good health. Almost no one is killing pathogens in the air where they pose the risk of transmission. We've been ridiculously focused on hand sanitizer and other measures where the problem is the microbes are in the air, including COVID-19. The Genesis Fogger is HOCL. It's a powerful tool, not only for living with COVID, but also removing harmful pathogens. Remember, if we have fewer virions in the air, much less likely to get a critical inoculum and actually get clinically sick. The same thing applies to the cold and flu, whether it be adenoviruses, coronaviruses, polymyxoviruses, influenza, viruses. And also, there are antibiotic-resistant superbugs. There can be ones, particularly that are airborne, including uh, Clostridium difficile, which is airborne and um, in contact mode. So uh, consider the Genesis Fogger that utilizes HOCL. The Genesis Fogger is perfectly designed. It's a machine that produces a fine dry mist using HOCL that quickly kills germs, bacteria, and viruses in the air and surfaces, and it does it simultaneously. So please go to uh, genesisfogger.com slash outloud and uh, get 15% off your purchase of the Genesis Fogger. That's where the upfront cost is going to be, and I can tell you, you're going to be happy you did it. So let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. 
Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day, yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. Let the silent voices be heard. It was the rallying call that started it all. It's a wide spectrum of programming. From world and political news to societal and cultural stories, six amazing years of news blogs, informative podcasts, and great talk radio. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Welcome back. This is Pastor Rick Stevens, and we're talking about Aram, and we're talking about God, and we're talking about faith, and we're challenging each other to have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. You're listening to America Out Loud, where we're saying out loud that God is involved in things like even the Supreme Court decision, the Supreme Court opinion overturning the Roe decision of many years ago. We're saying out loud that God was involved in the prayer decision that preserved our freedom to pray. And we're equating those kinds of involvements of God with the involvement that God had in the story of Naaman when the Bible tells us that God gave Naaman a victory in battle, a military victory. So he was a great guy, high standing in the, in the kingdom. The, the country where he was was just north of Israel, and he was just a great general had access to power, had access to money, as we'll see. But he had a problem, skin disease, and he couldn't solve it. Now, skin diseases in those days were a, a variety of diseases, and the scriptures don't often use specific words to help us understand exactly what the dermatological meaning of the word that we translate here, skin disease, actually was. Now, some English translations, to be sure, maybe the one you look at will say that he had leprosy. By all accounts that I could find, the people who study the language and understand the disease far better than I ever will tell us that it's not likely that Naaman had leprosy as we understand it today. He probably had a skin disease that was serious because they took those diseases seriously. They took them seriously because they were repulsed by those skin diseases, and they considered such skin diseases a punishment from the gods. And it made them, in a sense, and not the same sense for Aram's kingdom, for Naaman as for Israel, but they considered them unclean, a fashion of unclean. In Israel, there was a very specific definition of unclean, but, but you get the idea. So, so Naaman has this problem and he can't solve it. His power and his money can't solve it. And you'll see he had a lot of money and he had a lot of power because the king supported him and sent him on his way to get a solution to the problem. Now, it tells us in this story that in Naaman's household, there was a young girl who had been captured and taken into slavery during a border skirmish along the border between Aram and Israel. 
sad thing. Those border skirmishes happened. There, not a lot is made of them. But if you had, were, had been that little girl and captured, it would have been devastating to you. But she was now in Naaman's household serving his wife, and she knew about the problem, and interestingly, didn't hold a grudge against the enemy that had taken her captive. You could say, and rightfully so, that she loved her enemy because she suggested that Naaman needed to go see God's prophet to find healing for his disease. She was aware of God's saving presence with his people Israel. And she had faith in that God, in contrast to some other people in the story. She had enough faith that she persuaded them that Naaman should go and get help from God's prophet. So Naaman went to the king of Aram and told him what's going on, and the king agreed he should go and prepared a letter for him to take and a large treasurer to go along with it. Now, it's interesting, and we don't have any explanation of it, but it's interesting that the very decision to go seek help from God's prophet indicates a level of respect for Israel's God. Doesn't say it flat out, but it's interesting to notice that. It's interesting to notice he took a letter of introduction from one king to another, a courtesy. Uh, maybe it was intended to get action on Naaman's behalf. Maybe they wouldn't take Naaman seriously without that letter. We, I don't know for sure about that. But he also took a gift, an exorbitant gift. I mean, a huge sum of money. People who study this tell us it would be three quarters of a billion dollars in today's money. Can you imagine? That is a huge amount of money. Now, why did he take all that money? Well, maybe he thought he could buy healing. Maybe he thought it was necessary to give God's prophet that money for healing. Later in the story that takes place after we finished, we find out he couldn't. And it's really not unprecedented for one king to help the assistance or to ask for the assistance of another king, and in this case, for healing. Well, the king of Israel gets a letter, reads it, and, and immediately panics. He tears his robe in great distress, uh, believing he's in big trouble. Now, when a king tears his robe, it's a symbol of a national crisis, and the king believed that Aram was picking a fight with him. And likely because of his response, he was convinced that he didn't have the military might to fight back. And so he was in enormous distress. But you notice what Israel's king said was, how can I cure a disease? And here he is, king of Israel, the very country where God's prophet resided, the very country that had made covenant with Yahweh, with God, with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's not even recognized him, even though a servant girl taken captive into a foreign land recognized him. Well, he was afraid, and he didn't know what to do, but, uh, but Elisha hears about it. Elisha is the prophet that the girl referred to and now steps into the story to solve the prof problem. Elisha sends word to the king and says, uh, don't worry about it. Send it to me. I'll take care of it. It's not a problem. Uh, what in the world? That sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? That's very simple. Well, not only did he say, send him to me, but Elisha said, when he comes to me, he'll know there's a prophet in Israel. In other words, Naaman will know about God. Or in other words, maybe Elisha was saying, I'll show him God's power. So, 
Naaman went to Elisha to see what was going on. Now, he gets to Elisha's place, and Elisha sends a messenger out with instructions for Naaman to go to the Jordan River and to wash seven times, and when he did, he would be healed of his skin disease. Now, it's very interesting that Elisha did not go out to meet this great man from a kingdom to the north who had the power of that kingdom behind him and who had enormous wealth with him. But Elisha never went out to speak to him. Now, some people might say, well, maybe Elisha considered Naaman unclean and he didn't want to get near him. Uh, that's a little bit hard to, to believe when you read the story of what is going to happen and what did happen to Naaman. Um, I don't know that it was an attempt to be disrespectful or to, to dishonor him. Uh, we don't have any reason to think that, that Elisha thought those kinds of things. What he was probably doing by giving instructions to Naaman was separating himself from the miracle that God was about to do so that it would be clear to everyone, including us, as we read the story, and it is clear to us that God was the one who did the healing not the prophet Elisha. The washing instructions were not unusual. That was sometimes given in those days for dealing with skin diseases. That wasn't so unusual. And ritual washing was pretty common in the ancient Near East and their religious practices. It was done for purification. So that, that was not at all unusual. What was interesting was is that, that there wasn't any special involvement of Elisha. Indeed, we have a real interesting clue in that he was told to wash seven times, and that's a symbol in the scriptures of completion. Well, Naaman was absolutely ticked off. He was mad. He was angry. He didn't get what he expected, and he couldn't figure out what's going on. He talks about how they have better rivers where he's from. Why couldn't he wash there? Why did he come all the way down here? He turned and he left Elisha in a rage. Now, was he mad because of disrespect? Uh, maybe was he mad because Elisha didn't honor him as he should have been honored? Well, maybe. Was his rage at least partially justified? I don't know. Uh, it's, it's fascinating that he took his eye off the prize and got mad. I guess you'd say his pride got in the way. And it did. It got very much in the way. You see, Naaman had expectations of Elisha to make the difference, and Elisha had other ideas because he wanted God to get the credit. Now, I want to be very careful here, and I don't want you to go in places that I'm not going, but I do want to say a little bit about this concept of healing in our world today. Nowhere in the Bible that I'm aware of does God promise that he will heal everyone who asks. Nowhere that I'm aware of does God say, if only you have enough faith or something else, you'll be healed. I've heard people teach those kinds of things, and they'll say that if you have enough faith, your healing will come. I don't find that in the Bible. I don't see where Naaman said he had faith, unless you want to call his willingness to finally go down and wash faith, but he was angry at this point. He was, he was mad. He didn't get what he expected. But Elisha had very carefully orchestrated things to make sure that God got the credit. Have you ever noticed, and I don't want to speak against something that God is doing, but this very much concerns me, and we need to face up to it. 
Have you ever noticed how many people today that set themselves up as God's healers put themselves right in the middle of the healing so that they are connected to the healing so that they get credit as healers? You see, Elisha had nothing to do with that. He didn't want anything to do with that at all. Have you noticed today how people have this idea that if they go to the right person to pray for them, that they will be healed on the spot? Does God sometimes heal people on the spot? Sure. Nothing's too difficult for God. We know that. But did you notice in the story of Elisha, he sent Naaman away, and Naaman was not healed until he had done the prescribed washing that Elisha sent him to do. God was entirely the, the instrument of, of Naaman's healing. There was no mistake about it. Could it be that, that we're reluctant to have people pray for us for our physical difficulties because we, well, we think if we don't get healing instantly on the spot in that moment, then God isn't there, or, or because we haven't found somebody who, who makes a big show of healing and, and has people healed all the time, or so they say. I'm really nervous when we insert ourselves as the instruments of healing. God is the one who heals every time. And when we pray for people, we don't pray because there's anything special about us. We pray because God has given us the opportunity to pray for people. And when God chooses to heal, we rejoice. And when we humbly present ourselves before God and he says, no, we humbly acknowledge that he knows best and we will trust him because faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. So three cheers for Elisha for making sure that God got the credit. I think that is huge. Well, Naaman's all upset. He angry, turns away, not going to do it. But his servants kind of talk some sense to him. Notice again, it was a servant at the beginning of the story that had no power, speaking to the powerful people, Naaman, his wife, and by, by suggestion, even to the king. And now the servants of Naaman who have accompanied him on this trip are the ones that speak sense to him again. You know, you and I sometimes need to realize that we may not be powerful people, but sometimes people need to hear from us because they need wisdom that we have. So you might have that opportunity, and if you do, take it. Servants said, look, if Elisha had told you to do some great thing, you would have done it. So why can't you just go down and, and wash in the Jordan River? Um, wouldn't you like to be healed? And so he does. He goes down and he washes in the Jordan River and, and Naaman receives the gift of God's healing. Notice that Naaman did have to do something. He had to obey God and God responded. It's also an interesting contrast at this point because for much of this time, and going back to the stories of Elijah previous to this, Israel had been disobedient to God. Now, here's someone from another country who, who doesn't necessarily honor God, but who comes to one of God's prophets, comes to God because his power and his money can't solve his problem, and he needs help. And the prophet tells him, go do this simple thing in the Jordan, wash seven times, and he did, and his skin was restored. His skin was restored like a small boy. He became clean. You know, we talked a little bit earlier about what God can do to us through the pain of, 
of abortion. And maybe if you've been scarred by that, this is exactly the same thing, the same imagery. God can wash you clean and make you whole. That's the good news. There is enough grace. I saw a billboard recently that said there's more grace with God than there is sin in our hearts. And I thought that's exactly right. And we sometimes forget that. We don't presume on God. We humbly ask him to forgive us, and then we change our lives. We don't go on sinning and say, well, if God's got that much grace, he'll forgive me the next time. No, 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 no. Not even close. We humbly change our lives, and we follow him, and we experience that kind of healing forgiveness. Notice that in the story, it's never about the power or the money of the person, even going a little farther into the story when Naaman offers to reward Elisha and Elisha doesn't take anything, but Elisha's servant does and pays the price for taking the gift from Naaman. No, it's clearly that, that God wants us to understand that he was the healer and he can't be bought. He can't be sold. We need to take heart that God is gracious and we can't be bought and we can't be, or he can't be sold. It's also important to notice that what Naaman did was he dealt with himself first and then presented himself to God. You know, it takes a level of humility to present oneself to God. Have you ever thought about that? Uh, this business of pride is very deceptive, and Naaman had a, a, a real problem with that. And, and we need to think about ourselves. You know, we're going to need God's help sometime in our lives. It's almost undeniable. And shouldn't we now humble ourselves before God so that we can walk with him? And, and one day when we need his help, we will have more confidence that his help will be there. We'll have the grace we need for those days. We won't respond in pride because we will have learned the, the grace of humility. Humility is one of those things that you've, you've heard all the stuff that some people are proud of their humility. Well, that's not it at all. But we can see Naaman, and we can learn from him, because he thought his power, like giving the command to the king through another king, make sure I get healed, he thought his power could do the job, or he thought his money could do the job. He, he took a what we'd call a king's ransom. I guess that is a king's ransom. Three quarters of a billion dollars is a lot of money. But the money wasn't helpful because God wasn't interested in it. God's representative, Elisha, wasn't interested in it. And so when, when Naaman was rebuffed and the prophet didn't respond the way he thought he should, he walked the other way. Now, also notice that the text talks about how Naaman wanted the prophet to come out and do something, wave his hand over or something like that. No, Elisha didn't do anything because if Elisha had done that, then someone might have credited Elisha with having accomplished the miracle. And Elisha said, no, just go. You and God can take care of it. Uh, you go humbly and God will respond to your request and you'll be made clean. Uh, I, I wonder if God would say that to some of us. You go humbly and God will respond to your need. You see, instead, Naaman, in a huff, a puffed-up pride, old Naaman, he knew what he was doing. He turned away, and he left in anger. He wouldn't have gotten any help if he had stayed that way. 
But thankfully, he had people in his life, his servants. Sometimes we have people in our lives who talk sense into us and keep us from doing really dumb things. We've done enough dumb things anyway, haven't we? And so these people, servants, powerless people, talked sense into Naaman and helped him realize that he could do the humble thing and go wash in the Jordan River and receive God's grace of healing. And, and isn't it interesting that, that a humble guy like Elisha was able to help a powerful man or a seemingly powerful man like Naaman? You know, Elisha looked powerless compared to the king that Naaman served and the power and wealth associated with that. But really, Naaman needed the help of a powerful God, and Elisha, a seemingly powerless man, represented a really, really powerful God. You know, I asked earlier, how do you think about God? And, you know, maybe it's how we think about ourselves. That's the real question. Because aren't we a lot like Naaman? Don't we too often think we're really big stuff, important, and we've done this or we've done that, or God owes us because we've been this faithful or we've made this deal, or so we think we made a deal with God. Elisha had none of that. When Naaman came to try to make a deal, not even close. But all of us almost certainly are going to come face to face with a time in our life when we will have a problem that no amount of earthly power, no amount of earthly money can solve. We're going to come face to face with ourselves and our pride and our need for God. Isn't it time that we learn Naaman's lesson? Isn't it time that that we begin to think about our lives and, and the way we think about God and respond to God and act towards God, isn't it time to realize that when we say things like, well, I'm going to do this, and then, then when I get tired of all of the stuff in life that I want to do, I'll, I'll turn to God and, and tell him I'm sorry, and then he'll forgive me. Really? Isn't that, isn't that an expression of pride on our part? Who do we think God is? Does he jump when we say jump? Well, of course he doesn't. We need to learn Naaman's lesson and humble ourselves. We, too often, we, we say to God, well, well, you'll understand. I want to do this just this one time. I'm not going to put you first this time because you'll understand. And, and God is thinking, yeah, I understand. All right. You're showing me Naaman's pride because you think you know better when I've said, do it this way. When I've said, put me first. You know, so many times that, that we notice in ourselves and in people around us. And, and by the way, this isn't really the time for us to be looking at everybody around us until we've looked at ourselves carefully. But it's really important for us to realize that, that the scriptures tell us to humble ourselves before the Lord and he will lift us up. So if we need God's help, and we all do, and we all will, we do now whether we know it or not, and we will someday, and we'll really know it, it all starts with humility. It all starts with putting away that pride that so easily trips us up. Indeed, the Bible tells us that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now think about that. 
How do people think about God? Well, they deny him. That's an expression of pride. Or they pretend he's not there. That's an expression of pride. Or they, they like to proclaim to themselves and other people that, well, he's absent. If he exists, he's absent. Isn't that an expression of pride? We become the center of our world. And when we do that, or any other of the either overt or subtle expressions of pride, when we do that, we find that God actively resists us. You want to fight with God? Just double down on pride. You want to have trouble with God? Just double down on pride. Think about Naaman. He doubled down on pride. When the prophet told him, go wash, when Elisha told him, go wash, he doubled down, got angry and said, not me. Why am I here? What are you doing to me? I shouldn't be treated this way. And at that point, by resisting God's instructions, he would have fought against God and fought against himself even, and he would have lost the opportunity to be made whole. You know, it's time for us, wherever we are in our lives, to learn Naaman's lesson. It's time for us to take a hard look at ourselves and ask ourselves if we've been proud because we've expected this to happen and that to happen and the other thing to happen. Well, this person should treat me that way, or that person should treat me this way, or I deserve this, or I'm entitled to that, or, well, you fill in your own blanks. But ask the Lord. Ask the Lord, are you prone to anger? Might be pride. Are you prone to frustration? Might be pride. Are you jealous when someone gets something you think you would like? Hmm. Sounds like pride's getting in the way again. Let's humble ourselves before God. Let's move away from being the object of God's resistance. Because we want to have faith in the God who cares about us and makes us whole, and he will when we trust him. And faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. So humble yourselves and haul off and trust God today. I'll see you next week.